Hey, everybody. I would say happy Tuesday, but yes, I know it's Thursday. I'm sorry. We're two days late, but it's 2020, so I'm hoping you can just forgive us this time. Uh, We're so pumped about this episode. It is so awesome. It's a long one, too, but it is so worth all of the minutes that this is. Uh, We got the amazing opportunity to sit down with Erin Smith. She is an AMI birth to three trainer. She's also primary trained and she's currently working in a primary classroom. I've always been obsessed with the birth to three A to I classroom. I mean, if I could get another training, that's what I would get in an absolute minute. I've just always just been super interested in it. And this interview is absolutely phenomenal. We talk about so many amazing things, and it was so fun for Jamie and I not to talk about elementary, because that's all we do, Um, but oh, it's so great. So I really hope that you guys enjoy it. And I mentioned this in the podcast, but if anybody has any birth to three related questions, definitely email us at allthingsmontessoripod at gmail.com, and we will include Erin in that email, and she will definitely get back to you. As always, this episode is brought to you by Patreon. Woohoo! We have a new patron to announce, Leilani. She joined our ranks. Thank you so much for becoming a patron of all things Montessori. We appreciate it so very much. I'm actually looking at a stack of envelopes on my desk right now. I'm about to send out some stickers to our lovely patrons that joined us. If you want to become a patron like these amazing human beings, just go on over to patreon.com. You can search all things Montessori and then you can pick which tier you would like to be. And I will link it at the bottom of this episode as always. This episode is also brought to you by Sapling Supply. I wanted to read one of the testimonials of Sapling Supply um, because I think it really speaks to how amazing this company is. Sapling Supply has created beautiful furniture for my classroom for years. These pieces show a thoughtful design that combines durability and lasting beauty. In my 25 plus years of working in Montessori classrooms, I have bought furniture from most of the established Montessori companies. The sapling supply design and function have outshined them all. The craftsmanship and the attention to the smallest detail have ensured that these pieces only become more beautiful with time and wear. The innovative design and durability will keep bringing me back to sapling supply. Okay, so like that's all anyone needs to know. This company is incredible. So if you're looking to outfit your classroom, perhaps your home environment, or you're just looking for a new lap desk like I have, believe me, I use it all the time. It's amazing. So go ahead. You can go on over to saplingsupply.net. I have it um, linked at the bottom of this episode as well. And if you want to get anything on their website, you can get 10% off site-wide with our podcast code ATM10. We love Sapling Supply, so go ahead and check them out. Well, I'm delighted that we have a special guest here with us today. We have Erin Smith, who's an AMI Birth to Three trainer of teachers. Um, Erin's also uh, primary trained, currently working in a primary classroom, and has a two-year-old of her own. So she really lives and breathes this work right now of, uh, of working with children under the age of three also. Uh, and Erin's based in the Denver area. And we're just thrilled to be able to have you on, Erin, and just share with us the, the real magic behind the approach, the Montessori approach to children under the age of three. 
we have a tendency to focus on elementary because that's where we've spent our careers. Uh, and so we're thrilled to hear about this this vital uh, age span and, and what we can do to support children in their development. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jamie. And um, I'm a fan of the podcast. So uh, it's actually been a really um, fun way because I'm not elementary trained um, to it, you're making elementary and that experience so much more accessible, I think, to a lot of people who are interested in learning. So I appreciate all of your elementary experience that you bring to the podcast. And I'm really happy to be here. Oh, well, thanks so much for being a fan and for being on. Uh, one thing we like to do whenever we have somebody on is we love to hear about their Montessori story and how they how they got to where where you are now. So tell us. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things, too. I love sort of hearing mm-hmm. how people came to the work. Um, mine is maybe a little quirky, which kind of fits for people who know me, but um, I uh, had no intention of going to education. I didn't have a, um, a negative experience with education, but I would literally, people would say to me when I got to college age, you know, they'd say, what about being a teacher? You seem to really like children. And I'd say, yeah, I do really like children. And that's why I would never be a teacher. Um, and I had this impression that like teachers just kind of wanted to boss small people around. That was like, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. that's kind of how I viewed education. And so really had no intention of going into education, but always worked with kids uh, as a nanny and things like that. And um, as I got closer to graduating from college, I had planned to go to art school um, and basically needed to save up money uh, to do it. And so I started thinking about next steps. I had a lot of friends. I went to college in sort of the D.C. area in Northern Virginia, and a lot of my friends were working in nonprofits and were into music and art. and living good lives, but it kind of felt like they, uh, or I feared that I was going to get out of college and then spend all of my time with people who looked and acted and thought the same way I did. And I really didn't want that. And so I was like, I need, I want to live in a community. I want to like serve people. It's very fourth plane for (laughs) once I learned (laughs) the planes, I was like, okay, this is, you know, I just had this desire to be part of a community of very different people. And somehow, I have no idea how, but what came into my head was like, I'm going to join a commune, um, an intentional community. And so I visited some in Virginia. And um, sadly, I wasn't able to join because I had student loans. And so they couldn't take on any with student loans. But, and, and it's like, I, I kind of want to go back because this woman changed the trajectory of my life and I, I never met her. I, you know, I was kind of touring this commune and they said, oh, and this is the building where so-and-so worked. She uses the Montessori method with some um, migrant workers who, where English is their second language, adults, um, to teach them to read and write in English. And... So that just kind of rang a bell in my mind. You know, I had somehow heard the word Montessori. Mm-hmm. I didn't see the space. I had no idea what it meant. But when I realized I had to kind of regroup and make a new plan, I started looking into Montessori and um, realized that there was another way possibly to be with children. 
Um, mm-hmm. I assumed that Montessori, even though that was my intro, I assumed it was really for like three to six year olds. And um, I ended up, uh, actually my mom found uh, that there was a, an organization hiring for Montessori assistance. And they said, well, you would be working with infants. And I didn't know what that meant or what that would look like. Um, but I really needed a job and, uh, I was excited about it. I fell in love with it. I just, um, it was such an amazing, peaceful, um, fun and respectful way to be with children. And, um, I also really fell in love with the kind of adults that were drawn to Montessori. Um, and just, you know, I kind of felt like I found my people. So, um, I continued in that work, um, continued. I eventually started working with toddlers. Um, and then I kind of wanted to know where they went next. And I had no intention of ever working with three to six-year-olds, but I just wanted to learn about three to six. And um, so I did my three to six training in the summers while I was teaching. And then, you know, the way I've described my whole journey with Montessori is like, doors just sort of open in certain directions. It's like the universe Mm -hmm. has sort of pointed me (laughs) towards uh, certain things. And so over the years, you know, I've worked in three to six. Um, I, you know, again, I've worked with toddlers. I've worked with parents. Um, I became a coach at a certain point working with adults and then um, a consultant and then a trainer. So um, I've done sort of all of those things. And um, still love working with children. So part of my return to the classroom, which has just began this fall, is like wanting to somehow figure out a way to combine working with children and continuing to work with adults. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I really find both experiences um, really incredible and kind of nourishing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. What an awesome... (laughs) story a commune oh I don't even know what that would be like I love that (laughs) yeah it's really strange to like think like I said I should go back and like knock on that woman's door and be like you have you don't know me we've never even met but you I know a Montessori trainer basically because of you because I heard about you yeah how cool is that oh I love that oh man and it's just um, all too often that um, that the story is stumbling upon Montessori mm-hmm. education, right? Like it is, it's a, it's. I mean, hopefully, it becomes more of like a, a clear destination for people in the future. It's um, it's amazing how hard it is to find, even still. Yeah. Well, and yeah. it's funny you say that because when I. Like, luckily, my mom, who, you know, she's actually a big traditional education fan. She's not a, like, Montessori proponent. So it's really funny that she sort of, you know, um, she's like, there's this organization that's hiring because I was just kind of, like, cold calling. Like, I was emailing Montessori schools and just being like, well, someone talk to me because (laughs) I couldn't figure out. This was in, like, 2001. And I just couldn't figure out how to learn more. You know, it was, it mm-hmm. just, and I think um, we've come a long way. It's like, you know, things like social media are sort of a mixed blessing, but they are, you know, people are, do have more access, but I totally agree, Jamie. It's, it needs to be more accessible um, for people because it is such a, an amazing um, method. So Erin, could you talk about, um, 
you know, when we talk about elementary, we kind of break down some of the key components of the classroom or we, we hone in on something really specific to that age group. Could you talk a little bit about birth to three and just the key elements or key components of the environment in that age range? Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, you know, you think about this period from birth to three, if you think of a newborn and a three-year-old, it's incredible um, what happens in those first three years. And Montessori, you know, people often talk about how she was a medical doctor, but they sort of skip over the fact that she was also an anthropologist. And um, she looked at human beings and sort of the, you know, our history and, um, you know, how we evolve the way that we have. And she recognized that, you know, a, a newborn is incredibly dependent, um, you know, there, you know, in Montessori, independence is the big buzzword, but there is no independence when you're an, a newborn. Um, but that is so necessary for all of the amazing development that's to come um, because of, you know, just the way that our brains develop in that first year, especially, but in the first three years of life and the way that we kind of use our environment and our surroundings in those early years to literally construct our movement patterns, our mm -hmm. language, um, the way we think, our emotions, all of that is kind of interwoven with the environment from zero to three. So for um, a young child, one of the most important things, and I think something that really um, stands out in a Montessori environment is freedom of movement. So you mm. don't see things like cribs or bouncy seats or um, for the most part. And I always like to kind of do a caveat because like I was teaching a parent infant class and a woman called and said, can I bring my baby even if I have a crib at my house? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, and, 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 you know, I loved this class because parents would be like, okay, I use a bouncy seat so I can take a shower, you know, and we would talk about this idea of like, yeah, if you're in a family, like you have to weigh, you know, many different things. So it's mm -hmm. not black and white. I'll say that. Um, but in general, you want um, babies to have the freedom to move. So they're not in what we call baby containers um, because that forces them, their bodies into a position, um, one that's often quite unnatural. Um, and then the other, you know, uh, issue with it is that it, um, it limits what their natural movement can be. It's mm -hmm. a little bit like, this is going to sound very strange, but I love historical fiction. And when people talk about when women wore tight corsets, like it, changed the way their bodies moved and the way, you know, it limited mm -hmm. what they could do. And so it is kind of like corseting your child when they spend a lot of time um, in, you know, a swing or a bouncy seat or something like that. It, um, it actually limits the way that they'll be able to move independently. So lots of freedom of movement, um, also very minimal things. So, you know, one, because if you have this baby or this young child moving around um, freely, you, you know, there's, you have to make sure they're safe. And so yeah. you're going to limit what you have for them. Um, but also, you know, their bodies are kind of like playgrounds. I always say that, you know, like there's, um, there's so much that they get just from moving themselves around just by making sounds. They don't need a ton of external stimulation. Um, so you might have for a young baby, 
a mobile that's over, you know, a, a little movement map so they can kind of freely move their arms and legs and they have something to look at some of the time. Um, but you wouldn't leave that mobile out all day long every day. You know, you would kind of have it out for maybe 10 minutes and then, you know, hang it on the wall or something like that. So pretty limited. I really appreciate the the sort of your sort of realism too about the movement and containers. Like mm-hmm. it's obviously we don't need the, you know, the super saucer things with the 20 sure. different light up things and things, stuff like that. But it also is, you know, realistic when you're balancing your life at home or when you have, as I did with my second child, a child who um, can roll herself anywhere she wants at four months old. Yep. Like, mm. she is the reason we did get a few containers, not for living in, but just so we could like take a shower or, you know, breathe for a few minutes because she, you know, she could get into everything. So it's nice to hear that, um, that, you know, that I could be a decent Montessori mom, but also occasionally rely on a handful of things like that for, um, for just getting through daily life. Absolutely. Well, and the thing that you're saying, Jamie, is you observed your child, which means you had a slightly different environment for each of your children, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Based on them. And so I think that's huge. And also what gets lost sometimes, but is essential, especially I think in zero to three and in the home, is it isn't just a child space. It's the whole family space. And we know it's not healthy. It wouldn't be healthy for a child to come into a, like a Montessori classroom and think it belonged only to them. In the same way, the family home doesn't belong only to the child. So I think like some of those compromises, like it feels like a compromise. And I'm with you, Jamie, because I've had my own versions of those things where I'm like, oh my God, am I the worst Montessori mother? <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's just like, but, you know, to remind myself that this is part of, you know, living in a in a what we call the first community of the family is that everybody's compromising a little bit. And of course you want children, you know, your child to be able to develop as fully as possible, but just knowing that like, that's also a healthy thing to experience that we all, you know, adapt as part of the the family. Um, So I think, you know, and, and for me, I, I think it's easy to get into a kind of, couple of things. One is a very judgmental space from a Montessori perspective of, you know, it has to be this way to be truly Montessori and also to get into a very materialistic space. So it's like, you know, you have to have the right weaning table and chair and you have to have Mm, the right kind mm -hmm. of shelves and you have to. And for me, that's totally at odds with the idea that this is a universal approach. So I always say, like, you should be able to be a Montessori parent living in your car. And if you can't, then Montessori needs to change because, you know, then it's not universal. It's not really all children. You know, it's only children who are lucky enough to have a home, you know. So, yeah, um, I think there's so much um, flexibility. And over the years, I've become more open to that. I think, you know, when you're first trained and you're like in your classroom, um, or, or, you know, you're working with your own child and you just, you know, it's, it's this desire to have high fidelity to really do what you've, you've learned. Um, but I think part of what, um, the beauty and the sort of alchemy of Montessori is really following the child and letting, 
their personality unfold and your relationship unfold, you know? Um, and that's another reason, like I said, the environment's simple. I always tell parents, don't invest a ton of money in anything because you don't know your child yet and you have no idea what their interests will be. Um, and so, you know, my, you know, I've tried to follow that advice. And the one piece of like an infant material I got for my son was the box with ball and tray. Um, it's sometimes called an object permanence box. And it's this great toy that's for when they're about seven to nine months. And, um, you know, baby puts the ball in the hole. Usually an adult does it first. Um, and then it comes out the tray. It disappears for a second in this box. Then it comes out onto the tray. And it's sort of helping with this idea that something can still exist even when we don't see it. Um, a very natural way to do that, that we have done as humans forever, is play peekaboo. You know, you mm -hmm. do that with a baby and it's, do, it's that same idea. And I thought every child I've ever worked with has loved this. So this is, you know, it's worth it. My son did use it, but he used it what I call as a skateboard, the same way he used everything else. He just like <laughs> would push himself around, like he would push it and it helped him to like slide around on the floor. Um, so I was like, gosh, even this one thing, it's like my son is such a great um, bit of karma because it's just like he upends all of my beliefs about things. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, if you're looking at, at Montessori, if you're wanting to, you know, have a Montessori home or something, you look at the basics of what you need. So sleeping, eating, moving, um, and physical care, which is things like getting diaper changes. And you look at each of those areas, you look at like the culture you're living in and what would make sense, what's realistic, um, what's affordable, and then also what is going to promote some independence, you know? So like what will help your child to eventually be able to do those things for themselves? Um, and that's kind of the basic start. So there aren't really any hard and fast rules. Um, there's lots of great ideas that people use, but mm -hmm. it's really looking at those basics. Um, then as children get older, like in an infant community, which is um, starting when a child can walk till around two and a half. Um, you know, we, we talk about birth to three. Most children are ready for a three to six environment closer to two and a half than three, actually. Um, some hang out in, in the infant community until three, and that's the right place for them. But I always try to kind of clarify that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, in that environment, you've got lots and lots of practical life. Um, that's a huge part of uh, what that young child does, what they want to do. Um, and again, they're so interested in adapting to the, the culture, to their family, to their school. So they're, um, you know, they do that by washing dishes and sweeping the floor. And um, I always joke that in a, in a, in a room full of toddlers, like a spill is a celebration because there's always the child waiting <laughs> in the wings with the mop. Like they're like, I've been waiting all my life to mop the spill. Um, so there really are no like accidents or mistakes. They're all opportunities. And it's in a way they're like these little Zen, they're like these little Buddhas because <laughs> they, you know, we all try to get to that place of serenity and spend some time with toddlers and they're there. It's like, 
everything mm. is a joy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of practical life, lots of spoken language. So supporting spoken language development, um, trying to um, support them in being conversational and um, in learning more and more vocabulary. So this is kind of like creating that foundation for when they go on later to start reading and writing. And um, they've got this amazing sort of um, mental, like um, I always think of like those like file, um, those old school, like I forget what they're called, the file things when people would look up phone numbers. Um, A Rolodex. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So it's like you want these children to have like a Rolodex of – you know, if they hear that word dog, or if they see that word dog, it's not just one their their dog that they, you know, have at their home that comes up. It's hundreds of kinds of dogs because they've been introduced to that. And the same thing with people and with houses and with that they just have this really expansive um, vocabulary and sort of visual vocabulary. So we use a lot of things like language cards and objects. Um, and then, you know, music and art. Um, and then food. Food is huge for toddlers. So they spend a lot of time preparing food um, as well. Yeah, I've always been so impressed with the food prep. Um, at the school I worked for for four years, the toddler program, oh my goodness, every single day they were they were making something or, you know, working with some sort of new vegetable and they would, I, I my, my first classroom used to be right across from the toddler community. Mm-hmm. at my school. Um, and, oh man, I, I'm, again, I, I am so enamored with that age group, but they would always bring me their little, their little treats, or I would smell like something amazing. And it's two and three year olds doing that. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, and they don't like one of the things that I think sometimes people get a little bit confused, especially if they started in three to six. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's a big difference between zero to three year olds and three to six year olds. And at kind of age two to three is when it starts to shift because they go from being what we call unconscious. And that really just means like they're learning, but they're not aware of it. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, so I, you know, a, an 18 month old would never say to me, um, can I have a lesson with the mom? <laughs> Usually yeah. they just grab the mop. And if I'm lucky, I can be like, can I have a turn? And <laughs> I get to sort of show them how to use it, you know? The yeah. world belongs to them. They have they don't hesitate. Whereas a three to six year old will be like, hey, can I have a lesson on that? I mean, I experience this now and it's like amazing that I can say, oh, I'd love to give you that math lesson. First, we need to practice this and they can do it. You know, it's like that mm-hmm. is not how a child under three, that's not how their minds work. Um, they're very sort of practical and they're very in the moment. And so um You know, things like practicing pouring, that's something three to six-year-olds can do to perfect the movement. But a child under three pours, like they have to, it has to go to something, you know? So it's like, and, and, you know, if you're, if you observe a toddler classroom, especially when there's lots of new children, you'll see things like children drinking out of flower vases (laughs) with water. I drink it. That's what it's for, you know? Um, And I think that that's where the food preparation has become, you know, it is so integral because they're so um, much that they can do. And then it has that very practical purpose mm-hmm. of um, nourishment, you know, and I, 
I will say to parents often, you know, imagine you're this person who's, again, 18 months old and you live in a household, maybe you're the youngest child and your parents do things for you and your siblings do things for you. And you come into this environment and whether or not people have enough to eat at their snack depends on you. Like if you don't make the muffins that day or slice the cheese or whatever it is, like people don't get to eat it. Um, that is a profound um, difference, you know, and they're very empowered in those environments, uh, I think, you know, toddlers. And so um, that's one of the best things. We usually have a communal meal um, at the end of the morning and like we've never seen such beautiful manners as with a group of toddlers mm-hmm. um, because they do, as long as the adults really model, you know, saying please and thank you and, um, you know, you just like, there's nothing better than a two-year-old being like, thank you for these delicious muffins, Ella, you know, to another, you know, to an 18-month-old. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's like a daily Thanksgiving meal, you know, a daily celebration, yeah. which is really fun. Mm-hmm. Aaron, when you talk about language and spoken language with um, with infants and toddlers, can you talk more about that? Because I think um, one thing that I'm often struck by uh, with the way adults interact with children of all ages is that they have sometimes trouble interacting with children and treating them with sort of the same respect they would an adult, and they don't necessarily treat children like humans. They kind of treat them as something different. And I think I really see that oftentimes under the age of three. Um, And so how, you know, how should we approach our spoken language or how do we, how do we interact with children under the age of three? Um, Is, are there some tips or, or guidelines Mm -hmm. in, in our spoken language with them? Definitely. Um, And again, I think it goes back to that kind of like from an anthropology view, like what is language ultimately? It's a tool. It's a tool for communication. And so um, it's a tool that empowers us, that supports our social skills and being able to live in community with other people. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that the language we're using with young children is language that will empower them, that isn't. Um, So that means, like, for example, you might understand that your child, when they say, you know, wawa, it means water, but you want to give them that word. Oh, you'd like some water, right? And so, you know, it's it's not at all uncommon for, you know, a newly speaking child to say one word, and that means a whole kind of paragraph of meaning, you know? Um, And so you want to try to give them the words around it, not go on and on and on, you know, keep it fairly simple. But again, if a child comes to you with their water bottle and they say, wah, wah, you might say, is your water bottle empty? You need some more water? Let's go to the sink, you know, something like that. So um, you want to use language to empower children. The other thing people forget, especially, um, I mean, even with the youngest babies, is that Language is a tool for communication, and communication is always a kind of dance. So it's two parts. There's listening and there's speaking. Um, And so I often see parents of young children kind of, um, it's like they're just throwing words out at their child. There's like a nonstop deluge of words, um, usually coming from high above, and you just see the child tune it out. You know, they can't. So 
speaking and then waiting, you know, pausing to see how they respond. And truly newborn babies respond to this. I mean, this is something that begins right at the beginning of life. Like this is, you know, something we do very naturally. So always giving that opportunity for the child to respond um, however they are able to. Um, and so it can, it can be, uh, you know, with some movement or um, just eye contact, but you always want to kind of give them that, um, that space to respond. Um, trying to think if there's anything else. And then just really modeling, like um, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty ineffective and can be a major source of, I think, frustration for an adult when you get into, especially with a toddler, because there's, and I can talk more about developmentally what's happening, but like, what do you say? What do you say? You know, mm. I just gave you this. What do you say? Um, rather than just like modeling yourself. So whatever values you hold that you want the child to kind of take take in, um, you want to really model that at all times. So I think that working in Montessori has made me an extremely polite person <laughs> um, in a restaurant, in a, in a store, in... Um, you know, I'm always very polite, lots of pleases and thank yous in part because, um, you know, it's just, it, it, it has just become a part of who I am, but it's, that's, um, something I do value and, mm -hmm. and it's part of our culture. And I do want to pass that on. And so, you know, I've seen it with my own son that just very naturally, he says, thank you. Um, when he spills things, he'll go, I'm sorry. And, you know, and I'm like, you don't have to be sorry that you spilled it, but I hear myself. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I spilled that. Let me fix it. You know, so um, they absorb our language. Um, so anything we value, we really want to um, include that in our language. And then we also want to be careful with our language because they absorb it. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, be prepared to hear, you know, whatever you um, say, come back at you, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Would yes. you also say um, modeling your movement too? Like, absolutely. Right, because they're visual and they're just sort of watching, mm -hmm. watching you all the time. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, that's that. Um, and this is what I really, really love about toddlers. And I think is that I, I am a sucker for instant gratification. And the thing about toddlers is like, there's no, like they let you know immediately when you've made a mistake they're incredibly forgiving, you know, um, but it's like, you know, you tuck a one of those little tiny chairs in with your foot and then you've got 12 children doing that all the time. And like, you know, like <laughs> I, did it once. I did it one time. Oh, that's all they need, you know, yeah, so you really right. have to internalize that. Um, and then, you know, with movement, the end language, you kind of slow down to, you have to sort of, which like, I'm a fast talker and a fast mover. So I have to sort of take a deep breath when I'm about to enter an environment and slow myself down. Mm -hmm. Um, just so they have the opportunity to process, you know, what we're, um, trying to model. Yeah. I have to say the mirroring or the, um, the modeling and then repeating what you do. I've even, I mean, I've definitely learned my lesson with some things in elementary. It's, it's not as innocent in elementary. I think they, they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and it's, but it makes so much sense, right? It's like, they're trying to figure out how to be in the world. Yeah, exactly. So, right. Um, yeah. But they are, they're these great mirrors for us. And it's like, how am I doing with this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it, when we first started talking, Erin, you talked about um, parents asking if they could still come to this event, even if they use a crib. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little more about that? And I can say, like, we we used floor beds with both our kids, you know, even, mm-hmm. you know, that was 20, oh my gosh, 20 years ago. Um, but the with that younger one, we had a floor bed and then we had to put gates up, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like we didn't have to limit some movement yeah. to keep her yeah. safe. But can you talk a little more about um, floor beds and sort of the the philosophy behind it and why, why we have that? Because there's like layers of reasons, not just freedom of movement. Yep. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, you know, and that's, I think it's very easy to look at Montessori um, for young children and think it's all about that physical environment, you know? So what is Montessori? It is the floor bed. That's what it is. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> with the floor bed, um, again, what you want is something where, you know, children are, you know, they have as much freedom of movement as possible. There's also freedom and some independence in terms of like how they fall asleep. Right. So, Ultimately, like there are children, um, mine isn't one of them, but there are children who will like go to their floor bed and just say, I'm ready to rest, you know, and lie down by themselves. Um, Yeah, mine were never those either. No. And it's, you know, it's funny. I have a friend who has two of those and I'm like, that is not fair, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I, I think when I look at my son and his personality, like we snuggle in his bed and we read books and then he goes to sleep and it's fine. It's a, in fact, it'll probably, you know, like my favorite, some of my favorite aspects of parenting. Um, but you know, the idea is that there is this kind of independence. They have their own space. They have their own, um, place to sleep. Um, and they can get there themselves um, then, and then you can kind of build on that in terms of usually by using routines. So, um, you know, we've always had the routine of like, it's bath time and then we read stories and, um, then we go to sleep. And so that, um, that kind of thing really kind of support that consistent routine supports the, um, the ability to, to go to sleep consistently. And, um, and then like for me, like my son, we, for his first year, we lived in a one bedroom apartment. And so we, we, um, room shared a room. Um, and so now he has his own room, but he often gets up at night and comes into our room. So, you know, it's like, sometimes parents are like, well, my child's getting out of the bed. And it's like, yes, that will happen. If you have a floor bed, that will happen. Um, but you know, the, um, Children also try to climb out of cribs, which is quite dangerous. There's, you know, children have been hurt that way. Um, and it also, you know, for me, I think uh, it's also something where sometimes those containers, one of the ways that I think they are used that can be 
challenging is, um, and I understand it, but it's, you know, I put my child in their crib, I shut the door, you know, I turn on a noise machine or I turn my stereo up loud and they scream themselves to sleep. Like sometimes that's kind of what it's used for to sort of like, you know, they're, they're going to be independent by doing that. And, um, I, I don't know that that creates independence, right? True independence. Um, I think that, you know, children do need some support around sleeping and they sort of gain more independence with time. And so for me, the floor bed, it, it allows for that gradual, um, move from being very dependent to more and more independent. Um, it also really helps, I will say, cause I, you know, I nursed and there is that time when, when babies are really young and they're nursing to sleep and, um, you know, how many people have then like tried to put their child in the crib, you know, like drop them into the crib <laughs> and they wake up, you know? So I have found that it kind of supports transitions too. It, um, you know, it's very easy for a child to lie down in their, in their floor bed. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, for me to, you know, sit like as I was helping him transition, you know, he was in like a little kind of bassinet type thing. Um, there's something we call a chestina and transitioning him into the floor bed was, wasn't hard. Cause I could kind of sit with him and then put him down. So, um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no. And I really just think like the, what I found with the floor bed too was, um, I really appreciated that cause my children never put themselves to bed. They would much mm-hmm. rather stay awake. They gave up naps at two and a half years old, um, mm-hmm. which was heavenly for a six thirty seven o'clock bedtime, but kind of sure. a long day otherwise. But the, I, I think I loved when they could wake themselves up and yeah. be independent. So sometimes they'd wake up and not come and engage with us right away. Yeah. And that was always mm. really wonderful to sort of yeah. watch and see what they would do. And as long as the room is safe, yes, they're safe. You know, with our older one, we didn't, you know, we had a gate at the stairs. With our younger one, we had to have the gate a little more defined because she was a bit more apt to wake up and do her own thing wherever she could go. <laughs> and she was a little, um, so, but we, you know, we made the space that she was in safe and we made, you know, so that we could feel relatively comfortable that even if they woke up and they weren't, we weren't, you know, necessarily aware they, they could be independent and do their own thing. Um, uh, and, and I found it magical to watch what mm-hmm. they what they do that they didn't always have to come straight for me or straight yep. for my husband right like sometimes they were just happy to be awake and do their own thing yep. um and that's really powerful to not have to feel i felt like imagine if they had to rely on me to get them out every time they woke up and mm-hmm. how limiting that would be to what they could do and think and that sort of thing and that's where i really found the floor bed to be um it you know a really great thing for our girls and our family. Yeah, no, absolutely and it is. I mean, my son and he's an intense person and for a long time it was like even when we were in the same room. I mean, and I was right next to him, he would wake up and just like instantly want me basically. And so then to watch that change over time and um you know that there were times where he would just kind of talk to himself or find something to play with. It is. And 
um, it's like um, what it's reminding me of is just when a child first starts to locomote, whatever that looks like, like you were saying, your daughter rolling across the room at, at four months old. But this amazing shift happens where you get to see what they're interested in when they mm-hmm. can, you know, you're like, oh, like that's what you decided to go for. And it is um, just one of the coolest things as a parent. Right now, I would say the last six months, it's been this incredible language explosion mm-hmm. with my son. And and again, it's like another level of, wow, this morning he was just like, armadillo, armadillo. And I'm like, what do you know about armadillos? Like, <laughs> where did we even learn about armadillos? And it's just this like, oh yeah, you're a person totally separate from me. And even though I have a, so much control over his environment, there's still like, there are, there are all these things happening for him that, you know, I don't control. And it's, Oh, it's so exciting and it's really neat. So I have a question as someone who doesn't have kids, uh, but was a nanny for five years and wants to have kids, you know, in the future, to be honest, from a perspective of someone like me who hasn't experienced it, the floor bed seems kind of impossible. Sure. It, it just, you know what I mean? And so I... I understand why people are turned off to it because the crib or the whatever the baby container is feels safer because right. they're just they're going to be in there and they don't go anywhere. Right. But then I think about how it seems like work and consistency, but I think the payoff is what is worth it in a way. Is what I'm kind of hearing from you yeah. guys. Yeah. I think so and I think the other the other thing is, and I, I think this is true if you work with young children, but it's also true as a parent. Um, parenting young children and sort of the expectations of your average working person, at least in the United States, those don't really go together, you know? So <laughs> like, um, I mean, we can have a whole other conversation about like toileting and it's the same right. thing. It's like, you know, a big challenge is that you're expected to basically, you know, work crazy amount of hours a week, be on, and everybody's very mobile in our society. So, you know, it's like you're constantly running errands and out and about and all these things. And I think to me, um, what I've recognized since becoming a Montessori parent, because that is so true of a Montessori trainer and, you know, I mean, like, I'm used to go, go, go. And mm-hmm. you have to slow down. You know, that's the that's a huge piece of it. And you have to be very thoughtful about, you know, your space, um, containers. And I, I, I hesitate to use the word convenience because I think, again, like people are stressed, you know? So it's right. not convenience as like, well, I'm not really interested in, in working hard. It's like, I need a little bit of a breather, you know? So I, <laughs> right. and I totally get that. But I think um, if you can, if you're in a position where you can, you know, create a space that's safe enough and simple enough. And I mean, for us, like I said, we were living in a one bedroom. So we rented a storage unit to put things that we were like, this can't, you know, our space won't be safe with our, our child with this, you know? So it took some serious planning beforehand. Um, but, and you can just kind of slow down. It's such a beautiful and very peaceful way to live with young children. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the not to mention way less expensive <laughs> oh, totally one you buy a, you can buy even just a little crib mattress on yep. the floor is what yeah. we use without even a frame yeah. um and and it is it's about slowing down and about paying attention to that human that you're helping to develop not you know and it is hard i mean as a parent you pick and choose the things that you do well i mean like i said my kids never really chose to t- go to sleep. Like we had the routine of, but even my younger one, um, it's always that second one, right? Like, <laughs> um, but you know, she did not want to go to sleep easily. I mean, it was a, it was a big, she never even nursed to sleep as an infant. Wow. Like mm. he just was a, but it's still the sort of sense of autonomy it gave her in that, in that floor bed. And it's not that much harder. I mean, yeah. A crib gives you a false sense of security. Like yeah. my husband at about, I don't know, 12 or 15 months old, his mom found him outside after she'd put him in a crib. He mm-hmm. climbed out of the crib. He pulled out uh, kitchen drawers and stacked them to the back door so he could unlock the door and get outside. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God. <laughs> children are real. I know. Children are capable of a yeah. lot of things, right? And that right. that crib can give us a sense, a false sense of security, actually, mm-hmm. um, right. that they at a certain point, you know, at a certain point, can overcome. So it's yeah, but I think the big thing I hear from you, Erin, that I think I I appreciate a lot is that they're understanding why we want to approach children this way is important. And then we have to look at what works in our family lives and be conscious about the choices we're making, recognizing that we have to compromise on occasion. Um, So the, the crib and the floor bed shouldn't keep you from feeling like you can, you know, can't be a part of a a Montessori community or whatever. Right. Um, Right. That's right. And I kind of am like, you know, nothing's off the table because you don't know how you're going to feel. You know, I think that's one of the biggest, probably the gift. I'm one of four children. And my dad said to me, oh, everybody has a lot of ideas. Because I'm like, of course, I'm going to raise my child Montessori, you know. And he said, well, I'll just tell you that everybody has a lot of ideas about how they're going to raise their children. And then they meet their child. And and that's that has a huge impact. And I was like, that's the most Montessori thing of all, you know, Um, but it's true. It's like, you have to be prepared. There's a great, and I'm, um, I think Ashley speed is her name and she is on Instagram is how I found her. She's a AMI three to six guide in Vancouver. And she wrote about how she was really struggling with the floor bed and struggling with, you know, postpartum issues and, I was like so glad to hear this, that it was a parent-child, you know, a Montessori parent-infant teacher who said to her, try a crib, like try one and see if it works better for you. And it did, mm. you know, so mm. you you have to be willing to, to see, you know, what will work and to be, and I think that's part of the humility, you know, it's like observing keeps you humble if you really observe because yeah. you realize like all my beliefs, you know, are being challenged. Um, yeah. But I do, I think that that keeping that really kind of simple environment and that freedom of movement for our family meant we had to slow down. Um, We, you know, and we just kind of had to be together quietly. You know, it's like, um, I don't know. I find it to be a real, a real gift um, to um, have done that. And the, the other thing, and Jamie, your story about your husband made me think of this is 
Montessori talked about this, like deviations are, you know, just when, when children, when they're not able to follow that kind of natural, um, hormay, that, that energy inside themselves, it says like, run now. Right. Um, it's like, it, it's like a pent up energy almost, you know, it's this, it's this part of themselves that's blocked, you know, and it can create things like lots of temper tantrums or lots of whining or things like that. And so, you know, I look at, um, like that story of, um, your husband and this, like, look at all that intelligence for someone to climb out of a crib, to figure out how to stack these drawers, to open the door. But what would that have been used for had those obstacles not been in place? Like had that person been able to just, you know, walk out of the door and say, I'm finished napping now, you know, it's like, all that energy um, that was used to sort of fight this container <laughs> um, <laughs> might have been used in a different way. So I think like that's also, and I do think that contributes to a more sort of peaceful relationship with your child um, because they don't want to be contained. Like, and that's, you know, an indicator of this isn't great. Now, like my son hates the car seat and always has. And um, you still have to ride in a car seat. Like that's a non-negotiable. <laughs> But do we need to go to Target right now? Probably not. Like it, it has made me pause and go, let's go for a walk outside instead, you know? So um, it, it kind of, I think it's helped me to, again, as I said, slow down and sort of try to do things at his pace. Um, and that is a much more, I, I think, joyful way to, to be with a child because, you know, the time is fleeting. As parents of older children always tell me, the time is fleeting. So I feel like I'm really getting to savor it. Yeah, yeah it is. It is fleeting. I always hated when people said that to me in the middle <laughs> of parenting small children where I'm like, really, because this feels like forever uh-huh. right now. Um, but it is, it is, it goes fast, you know, suddenly they're 17 and 20. And I think that really is the key. Like it's something too, when I think about how that story has lasted in my husband's family for a long time, like that was, it was striking and thought and, you know, and that gave them a lot of thought and pause about, about him and moving forward. And I think that's what we have to think about all the time with our children. So when we see them, overcoming obstacles of whatever sort, whether it's a crib or anything else, what can we learn from that? And how mm-hmm. can we respond? And, you know, what does that tell us about our children? I think that's really powerful, Erin, to, for us to think about like that, it, even if we are using some things like cribs or otherwise, when we see, um, when we see this energy put into shifting their environment or trying something different, how can we respond and and be responsive? And I think that's, I mean, I can still, even with old children now, vividly remember the constant sort of, um, you know, strain on me as a parent of young children. It's, it, you know, they, they take, they need a lot. Mm. Um, And so sometimes it's hard to be responsive to like the new needs because you've just got a handle on the old ones. Um, uh, But as much as we can slow down and pause and be responsive, um, that's, that's, that's our job, right? That's what we need to to try to do, whether we have the perfect Montessori materials or the perfect environment, that that slowing down and being responsive is is the key. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we and we emphasize that. I would say like at the zero to three level, we always differentiate. Like there's the physical environment and the adult is the sort of orchestrator of that, right? And hopefully it's responsive to the child the child or children 
in the environment, like that's a true Montessori environment. But there's also the human environment, which is how we respond emotionally, how we observe and use our observations to to make changes. Um, you know, things like routines, which are so helpful for children, um, you know, but adjusting them to the children, you know, particular children we're working with, all of that comes from the human being. And, um, and I think, you know, to go back to that, that issue of balance, that if you're not, if you're like so drained that being present is difficult, which many people are there, especially right now, Mm -hmm. um, do whatever you have to do um, to care for yourself. And that's kind of like, I, I gave us a talk at a school. My son was four months old. And I was like, these are the five keys to Montessori. I just made this up. It was like, these are the five keys. Number one was sleep. And, I, and my number one point was get as much sleep as you can for yourself and your child, however you have to do it. You know, because you can have all, all kinds of ideas about how you want your child to sleep. or But if you're sleep deprived, if you're exhausted, you will not be able to follow through, right? Or maybe you will and you'll lose something in terms of like the the trust and the and the relationship you have with your child cuz maybe you lose your patience cuz you're exhausted um and it's like nothing's worth that relationship right so i was like mm-hmm. just get to sleep then you can always work on getting more independent sleep right or whatever it is um but i think so many parents have so much pressure on themselves um of how they're supposed to do things. And I never want Montessori. I always want it to be a resource, but never a source of pressure, you know, that people feel like they have to perform it in a certain way or, you know, so it's like, if you, you know, can get enough sleep, if your child, you know, you at, you know, I said food. So like prioritizing togetherness at meals. So if that means you're eating, McDonald's around a coffee table, I don't care. And it's true. I don't care if you're looking at each other in the eye, if you're having conversations, um, is nutrition important? Absolutely. But, um, the number one thing for a young child is that they, you know, that those meals are associated with family and connection Mm -hmm. and this, this, all the social aspects of food, um, you know, and then movement, like, again, to move is to think for a young child. So, so often, whether it's by putting them in a container, whether it's by turning on a screen (laughs) or by saying to them, sit down, stop, stop running, don't climb on that. um, They're getting this message that that very healthy need to move is a problem. So, you know, how can we look at our space and our situation and make movement not a problem, you know? As a person who's always lived in small spaces, we we deliberately live near large parks and we spend, my son spends about five hours a day outside. Um, that wouldn't be for every child, but that's what he needs <laughs> for his movement needs. Like that's what has to happen. Um, so, you know, making sure that that um, there are those opportunities to, um, to move, you know, and, and that again even the message, you know, the opportunity, most of it is about that message that who you are is great. You know, that mm-hmm. those natural inclinations that you have are wonderful. Your body is amazing. Um, so, you know, looking at your environment, looking at, um, your attitudes, um, and making sure that that's what comes across. And then with independence, <clears throat> just this idea 
that I'm here for you as a young child, but I also trust that you are a capable human being and whatever that looks like in that moment or, you know, um, you know, maybe that's you're two years old and you um, really want me to put your shoe on for you. <laughs> and I know you can do it yourself. Um, so maybe I just hold your shoe while you do all the work, right? And that's me sort of saying, I'm here to support you, but also I trust, you know, what you're capable of. Um, I'm not going to get into a, a power struggle with you. I'm going to collaborate um, in order to support that independence. Wow. I am even more enamored by <laughs> zero to three now. So um, thank you. <laughs> oh, man. Erin, this has been so amazing. Um, I was going to ask, is there a way, um, do you have any online presence or anything like that that you want to share so if people want to keep up with you? Um, I, I don't. <laughs> That's fine. It's not required. Um, I don't. I have, um, not know, yet anyway. Not yeah, yet. Yeah, there we go. Not, not yet. yet. Okay. Not perfect. Yet. I like, I like that wording. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Love it. Um, but, uh, I'm happy to, you know, if, if anyone has questions again, this is like, I can talk about this forever. So, um, <laughs> I'm happy to connect over email. I'm happy Awesome. Share my my info um, with your listeners. Great. So if anybody has any questions about zero to three, you can email us and then Erin will include you in that conversation so you can get the word out there. Um, but thank you so much. This has just been a true delight. Um, and yeah, thank wow. you, Erin. I just so appreciate the the sort of the real the recognition. It's what something I've always appreciated about you. Just that like these Montessori principles and how we approach children, they're based in like reality. They're not unachievable. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. not, um, they're not, you know, it's not that we can't ever, you know, be compromise or think critically. Like even, you know, I mean, I can't tell you the hours I spent bouncing my younger one to sleep on a, on a yoga ball because she wouldn't sleep any other way, but the relationship was important, right? So it's okay. Like, it's so That's good right. to hear that, like, as parents and recognize that at its heart, Montessori, the Montessori approach to children is to be responsive to those individuals that we have in our care. And, mm -hmm. um, and so we have some basic principles that we try that we believe in, but we also recognize we have to build that relationship. I think that's just such a powerful um, and helpful way to consider this work so that we aren't constantly living with guilt and shame um, as parents and even practitioners with children. So that's right. that's right. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is like those little absorbent minds, they absorb everything. So when we are managing tons of guilt and shame, they're taking that in. But because they're such self-centered people, um, they assume that they're the problem, right? So I always kind of try to emphasize with people that the most important thing you can do, whether you're a guide or a parent, is find joy in being with those children. Like that's what they deserve is, um, I love, there's a quote from the man who started Head Start and I forget his name, but it's just, every child deserves an adult who is just absolutely crazy about them. You know, it's like, that's what, children need and what they deserve. And um, it's way more important than, you know, as I said, furniture or, you know, Montessori materials is just that, yeah. um, that connection. So 
Um, and I think that's true all the way through a child's development. Yeah. Um, you, you know, elementary and beyond. So thank you so much, Erin. This has been such a pleasure. For me as well. Um, and thank you for all you're doing with the with the podcast. Um, I just think it's such a great medium and you're getting really wonderful information out to people. So it's an honor to, um, to be able to be a small part of it. Oh, we're so happy. Thanks so much. This has been amazing. Thank you. So fun. Cool. Thanks, Erin.